Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Americans soon won't need a prescription to get a birth control pill after the FDA two weeks ago approved the country's first ever over-the-counter oral contraceptive known as Opil. The historic approval comes with relatively little opposition and is still sinking in. So how do we get here? And will this pill be effective and affordable? We look at the science, the politics, and the history of the pill this hour, and hear from you, what impact do you think an over-the-counter pill will have? Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. For the first time, a birth control pill will become available over-the-counter in the U.S. after the FDA this month approved an oral contraceptive without a prescription. Reproductive health advocates say women who struggle with the time or cost of seeing a doctor to get a prescription, teens, the uninsured, could really benefit at a time when nearly half of U.S. pregnancies are unintended and after the Supreme Court took away the constitutional right to an abortion. So do you support over-the-counter birth control? Will you use it? Or would you have if it had been available? What impact does the pill have on you? You can always share your thoughts by emailing forum at kqed.org or posting on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram or threads. Joining me now is Pam Bellick, health and science reporter for The New York Times. Pam, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, happy to be with you. Also with us is Dr. Pratima Gupta, Assistant Professor in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at UCSD Health. Dr. Gupta, glad to have you too. Thank you so much for having me. So Pam, the the pill that the FDA approved is called Opil, and it's actually been around for a long time? Yeah, actually, this pill was approved in a prescription form 50 years ago this year. Wow. Yeah. Um, So it's very well studied. Um, You know, 
doctors, reproductive health experts know an awful lot about how effective it is, how safe it is. Um, it is very effective. It is very safe um, for, for a majority of patients. Um, so um, this is in some ways, you know, kind of not a dramatic shift, but it is very, very dramatic to have it available just kind of on the shelf in your CVS or in your convenience store or, you know, through Amazon or some other online forum. So it's a big deal. Yeah. So it will be in other stores besides pharmacies, as you note, and online as well. We don't need to go to the pharmacy counter to get it, even if it is over the counter. That is true. Yeah, that is true. It, it won't be available um, uh, until early 2024. And so, um, you know, we're not exactly sure if it'll be rolled out in all of those places all at once or more gradually, but the company has said that it will be widely available in all sorts of different um, retail establishments. And you don't need to go see the pharmacist. Um, you can just pick it up and just like you would a, a bottle of aspirin. Wow. How, and how much is it expected to cost, Pam? Do you have any sense right now? That is a very big question. Um, so the company has not announced the price. They said they will do so sometime before it becomes available in the U.S., it, they are under an awful lot of pressure to make it affordable, uh, right? Because the, the the whole point really of having um, or a major reason to have an over-the-counter birth control pill is to try to make it accessible to people who have not been easily able to get a prescription. And that can be harder than, than, than it might seem, right? In order to, to get a prescription from a doctor, you have to have a doctor, you know, near you. Um, you have, you may have to take off work for an appointment. You may have to arrange for childcare. You may have to get transportation. And so particularly in, um, uh, you know, low resource areas, rural areas, that can be a real burden. And, um, lack of access has been one reason why nearly half of all pregnancies in the United States are unintended. So, um, so as, as I think, you know, my fellow guests will, will, will say um, as well, you know, this, this access really won't mean anything unless it's affordable. So, the company has said they will make an affordable price. They have also said that they will have a consumer assistance program where you know people without means can get access. And then there's going to be a very big effort. It's already underway to try to get insurance required to cover this over-the-counter pill. Right now, under the Affordable Care Act, um, prescription contraceptives are required to be covered. And there are some states that do require um, non-prescription non contraceptives to be covered as well, but that's not true in most of the country. I think it's about nine states that require that. So there's an yeah. effort to try to, you know, uh, in one way or, the, or another, there's various efforts underway to try to um, make this covered by insurance. Yeah, I, I believe California is one of those states. Um, uh, with legislation that was authored by Senator Connie Leva. And so it is likely here, though, of course, it'll be interesting to see how things roll out and, and what the details are around it. Um, 
But but Dr. Gupta, to Pam's point, among your patient population or among people who are residents of this state, what difference, what who do you think this will benefit the most? In whose lives will it make the most difference? Yeah, so the approval of the over-the-counter birth control pill was really an affirmation of science and decades of evidence of nearly, as Pam said, 50 years of usage data. And it was really thrilling to see the evidence be recognized by the FDA. And like you said in your intro, I was really surprised that overall the approval process went relatively smoothly and there wasn't a lot of political pushback. You know, I think the people that stand to benefit the most for this groundbreaking expansion of women's health are, you know, any women and people capable of becoming pregnant in the U.S. who face unnecessary burdens in accessing effective contraception. So those could be adolescents, people who fear um, seek talking to their doctors or to their partners, people who don't have good access to a healthcare provider to, for seeking birth control. So we know that the OPIL is more effective at preventing pregnancy than all of the current methods that are available over the counter. So it's wonderful that the women and people will have access to a safe and highly effective method of contraception over the counter. And to be clear, this is not a form of emergency contraception like Plan B. Like it does not prevent pregnancy after unprotected sex, for example. Correct. Correct. This is a pill that needs to be taken daily in order to prevent pregnancy, not just in the evidence, um, not just in the incidence of a contraceptive accident. So it's a progestin. Yeah, yeah. It's a progestin only pill. So are there any folks who should not take it or who this type of pill is not recommended for? Yeah. So as you said, the progesterone only pill, or in this case, O-pill, does not contain estrogen. So sometimes it's referred to as the mini pill. Some of the listeners might have heard it called that as well. They're considered safe and they don't have an increased risk of venous thromboembolism, which is a blood clot in the legs, which the combined pills do have. So this is safe for a broad population of women. And the research demonstrates that people can accurately self-screen for contraindications to progesterone-only pills. And currently, the only contraindication that is stated is if someone has current breast cancer. Hmm. So I know you have been working with others in your field for years to get to this moment. Do you want to say a few words on the importance of the FDA's action to you? I, yeah, thank you for asking. Yeah, the significance of this decision cannot be understated. You know, for myself as an OBGYN and someone who routinely prescribes birth control and someone who ended as an individual, I've personally benefited and used birth control. This approval was an affirmation um, mm -hmm. of nearly 50 years of the science. And it is really at a time when there's reproductive health and rights are under attack in this country. We're really thrilled to celebrate a decision that this over-the-counter birth control pill is truly a transformative change, Mina, and it will help ensure that more people can access contraception that they need without unnecessary barriers. Pam, Dr. Gupta was saying that she was surprised that it had relatively little opposition. Were you struck by that too? Yes, I did find that quite striking. You know, over the decades, there have been a number of political battles um, that involved contraception and, um, you know, including 
you know, b- battles over uh, the proposal to have the Affordable Care Act, you know, cover it. Of course, um, Supreme Court uh, case, uh, Hobby Lobby case, um, uh, uh, objecting to that very thing. Um, and, um, you know, frequently also other reproductive health issues have been sort of conflated w- it, 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 erroneously with um birth control pills. So, uh, for example, um, you know, uh, there have been protests over uh, Plan B, the morning after pill, um, conflating that with the birth control pill, and then um, saying, you know, wrongly that uh, that Plan B is uh, an abortion pill, which it is not. Um, so so you, you might expect that there would have been a lot of um, uh, you know, at least some vocal opposition. And there really wasn't. I think there was one um, anti-abortion group that that raised uh, objections publicly. And uh, there were some Catholic organizations that, that did so. But um, the vast majority of hundreds of comments that were posted on the FDA's website, of people who showed up at the FDA advisory committee hearing, um, of people who issued public statements were uh, people saying this is a good idea. And and the and the uh, usual groups that that might be expected to be in opposition just really were sort of quiet, um, which tells you something, and you know that this is not an issue that they that they wanted to uh, that they wanted to fight on at this point. Yeah, and I want to get into why that is just right after the break. We're coming up on a break right now, but listeners, we're talking about how for the first time ever in the U.S., the birth control pill will be available without a prescription starting next year. This is after the FDA approved the oral contraceptive O-pill this month. And I want to hear from you, what questions do you have about O-pill or the FDA's decision to approve it for over-the-counter use and whether you support over-the-counter birth control? Do you plan to use it or would you have used it if it had been available? What impact do you think this has on you? Email forum at kqed.org. Find us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, threads. We're at KQED Forum. You can call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. We'll have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're looking at the science, the politics, and reflecting on the history of the birth control pill and how we got to this moment. Maybe you remember when the pill was first approved in the 1960s and have a story to share. Or maybe you have questions or comments about OPIL or the FDA's decision to approve an over-the-counter birth control pill. You can email forum at kqed.org. You can find us on our social channels at KQED Forum. You can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. We've got Pam Bellick with us of the New York Times, a health and science reporter there, and Dr. Pratima Gupta, assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at UCSD. And let me go to Lee in Oakland. Hi, Lee. You're on. Hi. Hi. Um, I just wanted to make a point. I'm a nurse practitioner who works with adolescents, and this is an absolutely great um, move move that the FDA made. However, I haven't heard yet a mention the fact that because it's progesterone only, this pill needs to be taken on time every day in order for it to be effective. And um, as a nurse practitioner who works in school health, I really want to, the point to be made that with adolescents especially, that can be a deterrent. And we have to really emphasize the importance of that mm. uh, in order for Lee, it to be effective. Lee, thanks. Um, Dr. Gupta, so there's a little less leeway with a progestin-only pill in terms of time of day yeah, that you take yeah, it? Yes, that's correct. So, you know, we in um, the reproductive health community talk about two different stats. There is perfect you. So in a perfect world where somebody takes their pill at exactly the same time every single day, the progesterone-only pill is considered 99% effective at preventing pregnancy. And in a typical use scenario, so that's where someone might be late to take their pill or skip a pill, it's considered 93% effective. So it's 93% effective, which is still significantly more effective at preventing pregnancy than any of the other over-the-counter birth control options that we have. But as the caller said, it is important with a a progesterone-only birth control pill to be taken um, ideally at the same time, you know, kind of a couple hour window in order to be effective. So Pam, just before the break, you were talking about how groups that you would think would come out against an over-the-counter birth control pill remained relatively quiet. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I think there are probably a few things going on. Um, One is that birth control and birth control pills are are very popular. You know, it's a, it's a popular issue. It's not, uh, it's, it's not an issue that, that, uh, most constituents in even the most conservative States would, uh, would, would object to it's, you know, widely used. Um, and so, um, and I think the importance of contraception, it's, it's, it's probably not lost on, on anyone that in, um, in this kind of post-Roe landscape that we're in with um, 14 states having abortion bans and other states um, having restrictions, that there has been heightened attention to preventing pregnancy um, when, you know, when, when it's not uh, desired. Um, so I think people are paying more attention and, um, and, uh, and, 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 
groups that are sort of involved in political fights um, or or politicians um, are aware of this. You know, they're 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 aware that this is a, this this is this is not an issue that's really gonna um, they're gonna want to kind of tangle with. Um, and interestingly, there have actually been some uh, conservative lawmakers in some states with abortion bans that have in the past year taken small steps to increase access to contraception um, by, for example, uh, having uh, Medicaid cover uh, uh, different forms of contraception. Um, And, um, you know, they, they may be making the connection that if you are eliminating or, or, or severely restricting abortion as an option, then it, it might be logical to try to expand access to contraception to try to, to, try to lower the, the, the need for abortion. Do you think the strong reaction to the Roe decision also played a role? It did tend to be conservative groups. There was thinking that it spurred some of their losses or their difficulty um, in Senate races and so on. Um, and so I'm just curious if you almost feel like this was a way of kind of trying to temper that a little? Maybe, maybe. I mean, certainly, um, uh, you know, in a number of states across the country, um, being uh, in favor of abortion bans has 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 not been a winning political issue since Roe was overturned, um, or it certainly hasn't been as easy a win um, in even some very conservative states. So um, I th- these things do tend to be kind of all part of a spectrum of, of you know, of uh, uh, thought or, or, or beliefs on reproductive health. So yes, I think that, I think that is possible. Um, and also, you know, y- you know, on the other side, right, on, on the reproductive rights side, um, it, obviously, you know, the, the decision overturning Roe was a, a, a tremendous um, wake-up call for people who uh, maybe hadn't expected that to happen. And I think they became much more engaged in issues like um, over-the-counter birth control. Um, so so you had not just, you know, maybe it's not that that winning an issue for, for, for the more conservative side, but you have very loud and enthusiastic and engaged voices on the other side. Yeah. Well, I want to bring Margaret Marsh um, into the Mina, conversation. Mina, yeah, this- Dr. Gupta, you wanted to add something? I'm so sorry to interrupt you. Yeah, I just wanted to tag on to what Pam had said, that while this was a huge victory for equity in public health and evidence-based research, I don't want to diminish the impact of the and the devastation of the Dobbs decision and don't want to look at this over-the-counter approval as a concession prize yeah. because it really it doesn't diminish the devastation that has occurred across the country in terms of abortion access from the Dobbs decision. And, you know, this will help prevent pregnancies, but I still think it can't diminish that. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Gupta. Uh, Margaret Marsh, a historian of medicine and university professor at Rutgers. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. You're the author of several books on the history of reproductive medicine. And I'm wondering if you can just Tell us about its complicated history, especially the pill's complicated history. Who first developed it, the driving forces behind that? So, yeah, I, I can. I was I was just thinking as everyone else was talking about 
the fact that the pill is um, been approved now for 63 years. So I, I think the over-the-counter approval of OPIL is is really a, an important advance in in the history of oral contraception. But I but the oral contraceptive we have to remember. 60 some years ago, the pill was the first what they called lifestyle drug. It was the first drug the FDA ever approved that wasn't designed to treat an illness. Uh, it was designed to be taken by healthy women who wanted to prevent pregnancy. It, it, was, it was quite uh, a big deal for the FDA and for the nation. And it, it does have a complicated history. Scientists started thinking about whether or not there could ever be a hormonal contraception, contraceptive pretty much as soon as the hormones were discovered, but of course it was impossible to do. And it wasn't until the 1950s when we got the development of synthetic progesterone, which are called progestins. Those are the synthetics that could be effective orally and at relatively low doses that the pill became possible. And uh, the, the kind of genius behind uh, the development of the pill was Gregory Pincus, uh, a biologist. Uh, his work was initially funded by Catherine Dexter McCormick, a prominent feminist who was a close friend of Margaret Sangers, who founded the American Birth Control League, which later became Planned Parenthood. And um, eventually he elicited um, the research work of John Rock, um, an infertility specialist uh, at Harvard who was using these hormones. So, Margaret, you were using the hormones in infertility, you were saying? Sorry. Yes, I'm, I'm sorry. I have the... Uh, I'm in Vermont and it's uh, it's a, a rook here and I may have had a little glitch in my <laughs> in my internet. Um, yes, the John Rock was using these hormones um, to um, study and to treat infertility. Gregory Pincus was interested in these hormones to prevent pregnancy and the two of them uh, got together to to study the hormones and eventually, um, came up with a formula that uh, seemed to work in Rock's studies among his patients in preventing ovulation. And then of course, um, there were the larger trials in Puerto Rico, in Kentucky, and in California, in Los Angeles, uh, as well as, as other places conducted by other people, ultimately resulting in the approval of the pill in 1960. And we were just talking about controversy and expected controversy. What kind of controversy was around this, around its approval? What were concerns that people raised? People, people, well, people raised different kinds of concerns. One of the concerns yes. that was, was raised was that the um, early trials were conducted in Puerto Rico and they were very controversial within Puerto Rico with uh, some people supporting them very strongly 
uh, with other people in Puerto Rico, including some in the news media and the Catholic Church being opposed to, to the trials. And uh, so they were, they were um, probably among the most controversial trials in, I would say, American history. Uh, ultimately, though, um, when the FDA came to approve the pill, um, as not myself, but other historians have demonstrated, the trials and the approval of the pill actually were conducted not just in accordance with contemporary FDA rules, but actually sometimes exceeding, exceeding those rules. Uh, there were surely slip ups and there were surely um, by 19, even 1990s or 1970s standards, the FDA approval process and the clinical trials would not meet those standards. Mm. But by the standards of the 1950s, uh, the pill was very well studied um, and the FDA took the approval process extremely seriously uh, to the point where before they would approve it, they consulted with um, a host of leading reproductive medicine doctors and scientists, uh, including uh, Edward Tyler of Los Angeles, who was a famous pill skeptic. And ultimately, after he studied all the data, he recommended the approval of the pill. And I think that the endorsement by um, a skeptic who had also conducted trials on the pill um, helped to persuade the FDA that it was worth approving the pill. Yeah. I, I mean, as you note, in Puerto Rico, the way that they conducted the trial would not be okay today. Some of the women weren't even informed about what was happening to them. There's also been concerns about it being used as a form of population control, ties to the eugenics movement, and so on uh, throughout this process. I don't know if you want to just touch on that really quickly, Margaret. Sure, sure. In, in, in fact, um, it wasn't until the 1960s that any drug trials or FDA approval mandated that people be told they were using an experimental drug. It just... It, it kind of wasn't done. So, so you're kind of putting later standards on earlier trials. So that wasn't just true for the pill. Um, that mm. was true for antipsychotic drugs. That was true for pretty much all drugs that were went through the approval process before the thalidomide controversy in the 1960s, which made the FDA reevaluate everything. Uh, it was doing. And yet there were concerns that this was um, that this was eugenics, this was population control. And, and, and in fact, um, there were population controllers um, in, uh, in the birth control movement. There had been eugenicists in the birth control movement from the beginning of the birth control movement. And, and so you weigh out, um, I've actually been in the records of some of the women who took the pill in it during these trials and they took the pill because they wanted to control their own fertility. Yeah. Uh, many of them were 
young women. There was a 30-year-old woman who already had 10 children and a husband who refused to allow her to use any form of birth control, uh, whether it was he wouldn't use condoms, he wouldn't use anything. And she didn't want to have any more children. And that's why she volunteered for the trial. So yeah, there, there, there is definitely a eugenics strain, but there's also a, a strain, especially in Puerto Rico, which was a developing economy um, with many people who had ambitions of upward mobility. And there was also a strain for these women of wanting to make their own reproductive choices. Yeah. So there's always been these two strains uh, within the birth control movement, always oh. the eugenics and the uh, desire of women to make their own reproductive choice. Well, let me go to Mickey in Sonoma. Hi, Mickey. You're on. Uh, good morning. How are you? Glad, I'm great. Glad to have you. Go right ahead. We're coming up on a Thank break. you. Yes. I'm, I'm very curious about this conversation and appreciative of it. Um, I grew up as a young person um, that was able to take advantage of the pill. And I think that during the time that I grew up in San Francisco in the 60s, the freedom meant much more than how I feel about it today. Um, in that one, I think birth control needs to be accessible to anybody who wants it and needs it. That's very, very important. And I think times have changed in view of our mores, our, our morals, in the sense that me as an older woman now, were I to go back and make the similar choices that the pill allowed me to do, I would not. And so I think that it's very important for us to look at this conversation from the um, lens of what it means to be an individual who is um, sexually active and whether or not participating um, in, in sexual activity uh, before, during marriage, never, whatever one's choice might be, understanding the intimacy of what that is and how might we um, impart that also. Hmm. Well, thanks for your take, Mickey, and, and we'd like to hear others weigh in. We're talking about the birth control pill, how you feel about an over-the-counter birth control pill. And uh, you are listening to Forum. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. More than three quarters of women of reproductive age told Kaiser Family Foundation's research arm that they wanted an over-the-counter pill, and nearly 40% said they would be likely to use it. Pam Bellick of The New York Times reported that, and she's with us today, health and science reporter there. Dr. Pratima Gupta is with us, assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at UCSD Health. Also, Margaret Marsh, a historian of medicine at the university and a university professor at Rutgers. She's the author with gynecologist Wanda Rahner of several books on the history of reproductive medicine and technology, including The Fertility Doctor, John Rock, and The Reproductive Revolution. You, our listeners, are weighing in about how you feel about an over-the-counter birth control pill. And Robin writes, I am so excited about the FDA decision. I remember that a while back there was talk about there being a male contraception pill. I remember my friends and I joking about men ever taking it, but I'm curious about research and development for it and if there's any movement for it. Huh, Dr. Gupta, do you know? Yes. um, Thank you so much for that question. There actually is research that is um, still ongoing in terms of male contraceptive options, but right now they're all still in the development and research phase. So currently the male controlled options that we have are male condoms and a vasectomy right now, but I think it's important for people to involve their partners and um, in their, you know, it's just as important the male partner in terms of the decision-making regarding um, you know, controlling one's reproductive destiny. And Nate on Instagram writes, Before, how would this pill affect the LGBTQ plus community? Say a trans pre-surgery man is seeing a cis man. Is this pill safe and or has been tested to benefit them? Again, Dr. Gupta? Yeah, so, you know, um, unfortunately, there is very limited data in general in terms of the trans community too, because of the small numbers that we have. But with regards to progestins in general, we do have some data in terms of people who are transitioning, taking testosterone, taking estrogen with regards um, to their gender affirming transitions. And do know that progesterone is safe while they are transitioning and should not diminish their either feminizing or masculinizing effects, depending on what the individual desires. Let me go to caller Annie next in Marietta. Hi, Annie. Thanks for waiting. Hi. Um, oh, yes. I'm sorry. Thank you. Um, I was curious. Well, I kind of have a second question now based off Dr. Gupta's um, topic, but I was curious. I was reading a study in India about a ring that actually um, created a little charge as believe the problem around the vast deferens and that kind of like fried the sperm cells. Um, I was curious about the update on that. But for the in terms of female, I'm kind of a little torn because I feel like when, that this may give the illusion that you don't need to go to an ob I found that I had cerebral dysplasia trying to get birth control by going to the ob And then, of course, once I got treatment, and then I was taking my birth control, and then I didn't go back for years. And so I'm curious, are, will the box say, like, please also make sure you go see your ob Like, is it giving us false hope? Huh. Uh, Dr. Gupta, have you heard this concern? Thanks, Annie. Yeah, I have had the concern. And, you know, there is sort of this myth in that people need an annual exam with their OBGYN. And we were all, you know, 
sort of told that when we were younger. And thanks to the development and greater technology of research, there has been better screening for with pap smears and HPV or human papilloma virus for cervical dysplasia. So I'm glad, Amy, that yours was caught and hopefully treated appropriately. But um, we have now spaced out our screenings for, cerv- for cervical cancer through in pap smears to sort of three to five years, depending on an individual's medical history and their previous pap smear results. So there no longer is a need if you don't have any symptoms or issues or concerns for an annual visit to your OBGYN. That being said, you know, there we encourage people to still be in contact with their physician or healthcare provider should they have any questions or concerns, notice any changes in their bodies or their symptoms as well. And, you know, one of the silver linings of the pandemic is that we have greater data around the success of telehealth. And so there's an increased availability, which also increases access to people to reach their providers via video visits, um, electronic or email messages as well too, regarding their concerns as well too. So the goal around the -the over-the-counter access for birth control pills was to increase access, but by no means decrease um, screenings, necessary screenings, medical screenings, you know, if you're age appropriate for sexually transmitted diseases or age appropriate screenings for breast cancer. So we do want to encourage people to continue to get their appropriate medical screenings for preventative health, but the, but now have this additional option for, for bodily autonomy. Well, Mike writes, have other countries done this already? Is the U.S. ahead or behind the curve on the OTC pill? Pam, you want to take Mike's question? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, well, the U.S. is uh, is behind. <laughs> um, there, <laughs> um, there are, I think, about a hundred countries that um, allow that have a uh, what they call an over-the-counter birth control pill. Some of those countries, you know, it, it uh, still require some uh, pharmac- pharmacist intervention. So it's not exactly, you know, right on the, right on the shelf, um, next to the, next to the aspirin. Um, but, um, but, you know, you don't need a prescription, uh, for, for birth control pills in, in about a hundred countries. So, uh, the United States is, is, is late to that game. And that was one of the arguments that, uh, that, that supporters of this, um, uh, pointed out to the FDA that that there's a long history of this being safe and um, and and you know working very well in other countries. So Pam, I'm curious about what further changes the FDA or the FDA's approval of this over-the-counter birth control will spark. I guess because I'm thinking about you know, are there other companies, uh, manufacturers that are seeking approval? Do you think there will be approval soon? Yeah, well, there's um, one other company uh, so far um, called Cadence Health that has, they have not formally applied, uh, but they are they have been in discussions with the FDA for a, a, a while now, um, uh, waiting to basically get the signal from the FDA that they have enough uh, data um, to apply. And and they produce uh, what's called a combination pill, so not 
progestin only, but uh, progestin and estrogen. Um, so um, as Dr. Gupta mentioned, you know, the health, uh, the safety issues there will be a, a little bit different and, and the efficacy issues will be a little bit different. But again, we would be talking about a, a, a product that has, you know, been approved uh, for uh, prescription use for a very long time. So um, so that, that may be coming up, you know, uh, in the foreseeable future. And I wouldn't be surprised if other uh, companies that produce pills uh, file very similar applications because, um, you know, that's usually, that's often how it happens. Right. And, um, and uh, they may wait and see what the, what the market is like and, 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 and how it all rolls out. But um, I would fully expect that you, that you will see more. Yeah. And then with that competition, potentially, better prices <laughs> over the, the longer term. That's a good point. Yes. <laughs> Pam Bellick is health and science reporter for the New York Times. Dr. Pratima Gupta is assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at UCSD Health. And Margaret Marsh is a historian of medicine and university professor at Rutgers University. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation with questions or comments about OPIL, the over-the-counter birth control pill, and the FDA's decision to approve it. Whether or not you will use it or would have if it had been available, maybe you remember when the pill was first approved um, and have a story to share around that. Maybe you have had difficulty accessing a prescription birth control pill and this approval will have a big impact on you. Email forum at kqed.org, post on our social channels at KQED Forum, or call us 866-733-6786. Kathleen in San Francisco. Hi, Kathleen. You're on. Good morning. I think OPIL is wonderful. Uh, it's terrific news and great progress to make effective birth control available to the maximum number of people. One group I am concerned about is teenagers, especially very young teenagers who may be sexually, sexually active without their parents' approval. This group was blocked from getting birth control because they couldn't go to the doctor. Now they don't have to do that. My question is, is there any age restriction on purchasing OPIL? Dr. Gupta? Yeah, so, you know, with the OPIL approval, we were ready for a fight around young people's access and actually conducted many studies um, documenting the teenager's interest in non-prescription birth control. And we actually even did research that showed that women didn't support an age restriction. And Pam referenced the FDA testimony in terms of the panel, and we included several youth groups and organizations to speak. And sort of based on experience with Plan B, um, and where there was approval, but with an age restriction, the uh, company applied for an OPIL study with, you know, OPIL approval without restriction. And we were thrilled to hear that it was approved for over-the-counter access without any age restriction. And if I could just jump in um, briefly Pam. just to add to that, um, one of the other things that really uh, struck me, not only from the people who testified at, at the uh, FDA advisory committee, but but by the members of the advisory committee themselves, these were, you know, these are independent um, scientific advisors, and several of them work in um, adolescent health. I think there was even uh, one of the panelists was uh, uh, ran a, a pediatric um, uh, health program, and they had a lot of experience uh, working with adolescents. And 
unanimously, not only did they, you know, support this, but but several of them said, um, actually, this is almost more important for adolescents than 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 anybody else because adolescents will, if they're going to use birth control, they will almost always start with an over-the-counter method. They'll usually, you know, start with what they can get easily a condom or, you know, something like that. And this is much more effective than that. Um, and so um, it, it was just very striking that, that, that not only was there no objection, but there was just sort of like overwhelming support for both, you know, safety and just access for this young population. Yeah. It, it yeah, was and striking. Think- yeah. Go ahead, Dr. Gupta. Oh, no, I, th- I think that that brings up a point that you brought up earlier around which communities or groups of individuals stands to benefit most from this mm. over-the-counter approval. And I definitely agree with what Pam said, that adolescents are one of the groups that really um, stands to benefit most, too, to having this access. The research shows that the adolescents can use the product appropriately, and it empowers them to be able to make choices. And um, it's it's a heartening to see the FDA approve this without an age restriction. Let me remind listeners, you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. And on that point, Margaret Marsh, I mean, because for so much of this fight around and the controversies around birth control, age has been a major issue. I I remember just originally, it was just going to be limited to, to married women, for example. Right. The pill was originally just prescribed for for married women. Of course, uh, didn't mean you couldn't put on a wedding ring and go to the doctor and say uh, you were married or say I'm getting married in two weeks. I I need the pill, but was originally prescribed uh, for married women. And we tend to forget that a number of states up through the first half of the 1960s actually prohibited even married couples from uh, accessing birth control unless the woman had a medical reason for it. It wasn't until the Griswold decision of the Supreme Court in 1965 saying that married couples had the right to use contraception uh, as part of their right to privacy uh, that laws fell in the um, 30 or so states that still had restrictions on access to birth control. And that was five years after the pill was, was approved. So this is, this is, I agree with, um, with Pam and with Pradima. This is a, this is a, this is a big deal. And, and this is, this is so, such an important advance in, in terms of reproductive freedom for women. Yeah. And keeping in mind Pradama's earlier point about how, you know, the the availability of over-the-counter birth control pills, that push was conducted entirely separate from the fight over abortion, though the timing is that they're happening, you know, around the same time, though the events are unrelated and shouldn't be viewed except by maybe the most cynical among us or political politicos among us as a way to be able to be politically advantageous one way or the other. I guess what I do wonder, Margaret Marsh, putting your historical knowledge and that lens on the present day, where do you think reproductive rights for women are headed or for people with the capacity to become pregnant are headed? 
I think about this a lot because in addition to being a historian, I also write about, um, along with my sister Wanda Rahner, we write about health policy, especially reproductive health policy. And I see this approval of Opil as being very important, but in fact, I am quite worried about the future of reproductive rights for women and other people who can become pregnant. Um, the Dobbs decision is one of the most worrying um, decisions of my uh, adult life. And I think it's going to have serious repercussions. And I'm not so sure how as a nation we're going to recover from it, but we need to recover from it. Dr. Gupta, I'd love to also hear what you think. Yeah, you know, I have to say that we as a reproductive rights and a reproductive justice centered community are extremely concerned about potential legal challenges to this decision. You know, the as we've seen across the country, as referenced by both Margaret and Pam, we've seen continued court cases and attacks that are affecting our ability as healthcare providers to practice safe and evidence-based medicine. Then these are decisions that are based on political ideology, not based on medical expertise. And I really wish these policymakers, legislators would leave those medical decisions to experts such as myself and our colleagues. So I agree. I am I am concerned about you know the next steps and um, way we move forward. You know, despite this wonderful news of over the counter access, um, I can't say that it comes also with concern. And like what Margaret says, you know, this um, the devastating consequences that I've seen um, post Dobbs. You know, we here in California are fortunate to have good access. But I see people every single day who are traveling to California to seek care from restrictive states. And I shudder to think about the people who don't have the option or access or know how to travel. Well, Dr. Pratimagupta, I really appreciate having you on today. Thank you so much for having me and for doing this story. I mean, we really appreciate it. Dr. Gupta is assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology and Reproductive Sciences at UCSD Health. Really appreciate hearing about your experience um, as a reproductive rights advocate as well as as a OBGYN. And Margaret Marsh is with us, historian of medicine and university professor at Rutgers University. Her books include The Fertility Doctor, John Rock, and The Reproductive Revolution. She's the author with gynecologist Wanda Rahner of several of them on the history of reproductive medicine and technology. Thank you to you. Pam Bellock, health and science reporter at The New York Times. Thanks so much for your reporting on this. Really appreciate that as well. And my thanks to our listeners for sharing your questions, your concerns, your joy, your experiences. And my thanks also to Susie Britton for producing today's segment. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. You set this chicken your last time, cause now I've got the pill. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country... We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.